Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkinsliff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfine, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at Funkinstuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify. As always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts, Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership bassist, composer, John Norwood Fisher, a founding member of Los, Ange Los Angeles' infamous rock, soul, funk, ska, alternative band, Fishbone. Since bursting onto the scene in 1985 with the festive doomsday anthem Party at Ground Zero, the group has released seven studio albums along with several EPs and live recordings. Among their other classic songs are Charlie, Everyday Sunshine, Bone in the Boneyard, Swim, and covers of Freddy's Dead, Shaky Ground, and Everybody is a Star. In addition, Fishbone has made its mark in film and television, and Norwood Fisher has also stepped out with other projects, including leading the revolving door funk rock collective known as Trulio Disgracious. Norwood, welcome. How are you, man? All right. That was, that, you get all the important marks with that one. Good guy. Well, you know what? You don't realize until you start looking at it all together, it's quite an accomplishment, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Had a lot of fun along the way. Very cool. Well, thanks for joining the show. I appreciate it. We're trying to get this together for a while, and so good to finally have you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate, appreciate you know, the opportunity. And... Uh, Appreciate the blue sky too. You know that it's not uh, just a big smoke cloud there right now. Yeah, it was kind of, kind of, you know, surreal hell. Uh, like for a little while, it, you know, we're not a hundred percent in the clear. I don't know if I could go running or not, but uh, I, I was, I was checking the. the uh, I was checking the, the uh, air index, the air quality index every day for a while and have it for a couple of days. Feels good. I can't, I don't smell smoke. Ain't no ash on my car. Yeah. Well, let's hope, uh, you know, over the hump out there with that stuff, there's enough madness going yeah. on without that too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, um, you know, for the kids, right? Climate change. Let's give them a future. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I'm from Los Angeles, fellow Los Angelino, as I mentioned to you before we went on air. So, you know, I got to see the band several times back in the 80s. You know, it, uh, I can't even remember all the exact gigs because, you know, I wasn't, 
you know, in my best state of mind at some of those shows either. But uh, I want to say like the Palace and the Palladium and, you know, all up and down the Sunset, Hollywood, you know, usual locations. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys, uh, you guys were a force of nature, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was just doing what came natural, you know what I mean? We didn't think a whole lot about it. We didn't plan a whole lot. We just kind of, we used to call it random abandon. That was the only rule. (laughs) (laughs) So Norwood, you know, how how did you first uh, get into the bass going all the way back? You know, why the bass and what were your biggest influences? Well, Larry Graham is why the bass. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I was, I was eight. I think I was eight. Uh, my cousin, my cousin took me and my brother, who was six, fish. My cousin, uh, uh, Marva Joe Swinton, took me and my brother to go see the Ohio Players Grand Central Station, and I, I remember it as Jonathan Winters was opening. Shrine Auditorium, Los Angeles, and uh, we had second to the last seats, last row at the Shrine Auditorium, and uh, and yeah, I got my mind blown, and my little childlike mind got blinded by the the mirror pick guard from Larry Graham, and and when when I was blinded. I, it hit me like that must mean I must have to be a bass player. <laughs> you got hypnotized. Yeah, no, it was flashlight. <laughs> it was a bright idea hit me. I don't know, but I I, I took it on and you know it works out for me. I I feel like it worked like you know wasn't a bad idea. So you guys were uh, brothers in rhythm. Wait, wait, repeat that. I said you guys were brothers in rhythm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know what? In that same year, I heard Funkadelic for the first time, you know? No, well, maybe, yeah, I think I was, yeah, somewhere in there, I, I think. It's hard for me, like, I'm debating how old I was, except, wait, it was 70, 72, somewhere in there. I, I think I was six about to turn seven. That was when my cousin brought over America East is Young and the first Funkadelic. I think, you know, it's it a long time ago. I'm 55, I just turned 55. So. That's yeah. why I'm like, hey, I've been saying something all this time. Then I started to question it. Because Frankie Cash Waddy told me America East is Young came out in 73. And I was like, and, and then recently I had to learn, uh, uh, if you don't like the effects, then don't produce the cause. Mm-hmm. So I wikied America East is Young. And Wiki says it came out in May of 72. Yeah. So Frankie was there. I should believe him over Wiki. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going with Wiki because it works with my story. <laughs> yeah. And I was six about to turn seven. So that would mean I was two years before I would make it to eight to see Larry Grant. You know what? I saw I saw the Ohio players at the Shrine Auditorium. I want to say in like '75 or '76, but it wasn't with uh, Grand Central Station. It was just it was just them. Yeah, when I saw them, it was it was a wild time. It's hard because so and it might. I actually asked Diamond about this because because Fishbone played uh, uh, a festival in Hawaii and and. Uh, Ohio players were on it. And me and Fish stepped to Diamond and he's like, yeah. So 
it was like fire wasn't out yet. I had never heard it at least. And they performed it. So we felt like something spe- extra special happened. We got to hear a new Ohio players song that we had never heard. You know, so. Um, I don't remember exactly what year Fire came out, but it came out after that concert. Yeah, Fire came out in late, late 74. Okay. Yeah, the cover's up there. I don't know if you can see it. Yep, I can see it. Yeah, signed by Sugar. Yeah. Right on. So, yeah, yeah, and, and you know, so so Larry Graham directly, and then you know, of course, Billy Bass, right? Like, because it was those bass lines on that first Funkadelic album, it kind of really captured my imagination, and and then you know, and it would be Boogie, and Bootsy, right? Like, because America eats its young. Right, like really, "Call My Baby Pussy" was the song that really kind of on that album. The first one, like "Ooh They Nasty," and and that first, you know, that first Funkadelic album, just opening with "You You Suck My Soul," I look your funky emotion. Like I was, I was a little kid, and I was like, "Ooh They Nasty," but I like it. <laughs> something, you know, something wrong. <laughs> and she, they shouldn't be doing that, but I like it. <laughs> did, it did any of the grown-ups hear you listening to it? And, and yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I had really had to give it to my mother for allowing for all of that. You know, I didn't. I didn't realize how liberal it actually made her because she doesn't seem liberal to me. <laughs> I didn't think about it till earlier this year. Mm. I kind of knew that she was, you know, allowed, because my cousin brought both of those albums over because his mom wouldn't allow him to play them in her house. And when I think back, she might just have not really liked it because that was the house my mom used to play cards at her house, my cousin Annie. They would play cards and dominoes. A bunch of women get together. The kids would be in the bedroom, you know, and close the door. And they was listening to Millie Jackson and Richard Pryor, right, and, yeah. you know, like they was listening to. We can't. We couldn't be in there with them because they might put on some Leroy and Skillet, you know, some Lawanda Page. So, you know, like they was listening to things, but P Funk was Funkadelic was too nasty. And probably a little scary. Yeah, a little scary. So when you started playing bass, were you actually trying to play some of that, or were you playing more simple stuff? Um, I play added. It took when I it took took a few years, like, for me to actually get around to put my ear to good use, and but. You know, the first three songs I learned how to play, like like my cousin Jojo, who was Marvin Joe's brother, was a guitarist. And I asked him to show me how to play uh, Brick House. And he wouldn't do it. He was like, nah, I, I'll help you, but I won't teach you how to play. Hmm. And he, he made me use my ear. And once I got Brick House down, then I learned You and I by Rick James, and then I went right to Night of the Thumposaurus people. Mm-hmm. You know? So, which always struck me as a funkadelic song on a Parliament album. Yeah. <laughs> I think, is Bootsy playing bass on that one? Huh? Is Bootsy playing bass on that track? I uh, I imagine that that was that's a Bootsy track. Bootsy Bootsy wrote and tracked that. Yeah. So I know you guys got together when you were still in high school. You guys were all real young when um, the group got together. When when did you first start actually uh, calling yourselves Fishbone? It was in '83. Um. It was in 83. We had, we had played our first couple shows. 
which which was actually our very first show ever was was the same week as like earlier in that week we all went to the Beverly Beverly Theaters to see P Funk on the Atomic Dog tour. I was there. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We paid for everybody went and sent a few other friends and we paid for one show, snuck into another one, and ended up getting into a third. And uh, so after the second show, we stood outside because we wanted to meet Booty and George. And we ended up actually standing out there with Brian O'Neill from the Bus Boys and Nina Hoggins out there so we we stepped to brian o'neill because we were fans and didn't really know nina hagen but she was one of the most interesting people you ever want to meet and, and uh we told brian that we were playing at madame wong's chinatown our first show in the club which was where the bus boys started mm-hmm. brian actually showed up he showed up to that show and he connected us with who the guy that would become our first manager, Roger Perry. And I would just like to say, like, actually, I'm going to back it up to the, to the Beverly Theater. We stood out there and waited. And, and we ended, Boothy came out and Nina Hagen broke out into like this amazing operatic piece. Boothy was stood there astounded. And then she descended into her trademark Linda Blair guttural, like demon possessed voice. Those are like amazing. And anyway, we never met, we didn't meet George, but Catfish came out and invited us to an after party. And we ended up hanging out with Catfish and Clip and a few other cats. And they actually told us to come by the hotel the next day. It was the uh, the uh, uh, Beverly Marquis Hotel. We went by the hotel, and like you know, there's us. Annabella Llewellyn from Bow Wow Wow was was in the lobby when we walked in. When we came in, <laughs> we went through, and P Funk was hanging out at the at the pool, and it was partying, and I think we talked to Skeet, you know. I think that's how we got into the show the next night. Um, the third show that we saw. Um, but so anyway, I just wanted to be like like Catfish. <laughs> Catfish hooked us up. We was all on the edge, and Clip hung tight with us. So, yeah. and I think it's Clip's birthday today. I read that on Facebook. I saw that. Yeah, yeah. It'll be, it'll be, a, few, it'll be a few weeks before this airs. But anyway, happy birthday, Clip. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, happy birthday, my brother. So, so you know, like we was, and I, and uh, uh, so anyway, Brian O'Neill came to that first show, and um, connected us with the guy that would become our first manager. Brian and the Bus Boys kind of took us under their wing, you know, and the. Uh, Roger Perry and, and Roger Perry came, booked us a show at a club called The Music Machine. And when uh, uh, when it, they booked us with this heavy metal band called Kicks. And when the show was done, because we were called Megatron, sounding heavy metal, we didn't think so at the time. But once, when we finally talked to to Roger and Brian the next time. I was on the phone with both of them. They was like, you guys should change the name. <laughs> you know? And they put it in our in our in our corner to figure it out, but they suggested my younger brother Fish, we called him Fishbone. They was like, there's nothing cooler than that. Just take his name. Shorten his name to Fish. <laughs> <laughs> and we just, you know, basically was like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> we deliberated a bit, but yeah, 
that's how we became Fishbowl, 1983. See, at the time, I thought maybe it was inspired by uh, Clinton, George Clinton's album in 83 was You Shouldn't Have Bit Fish. And it had that like picture, uh, Pedro Bell graphic of like a fishbone thing. And I thought maybe it was tied in. No, nah, it was, yeah, we, we changed. It was before that album came out. It was still on the Atomic Dog Tour when we did that change. Hmm. There you go. What, uh, what were your impressions of the Funk Mob when you got to first meet and hang with those guys? I mean, come on, man. I've been listening to them since I was six. <laughs> it was like, it's the soundtrack of my life to this day. So, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was, the motherfuckers was wild. They was, nobody was disappointing. Really, you know, I was I was very intimidated, actually, to just really just be like, you know, like cat got cat still got my tongue, but <laughs> but it was it was like that, you know, like Bernie Warrell was going around the pool. He had a jug of wine, like a big ass jug of Ernest and Junio Gallo, you know, and uh, but Skeet was cool than a motherfucker. You know, because um, we was in the front row yelling and screaming at the at both shows. So you know, and and so you know, he I don't know if he actually recognized us or not, but he you know, he was like, yeah, we was in the front row, and we you know, we was just excited, seventeen year old. I was seventeen, you know. So that's great. Wow. Yeah, I think I was like in the sixth row on the left for one of the shows. Um, what an awesome show, man. They blew the roof off that place. That was one of the loudest shows I've seen. Wait, you, you froze up. Where did you see it? Where did you see it? I said at the Beverly Theater. I think I was like in the sixth row on the on the left side. And I was saying that oh, was one okay. of the, they blew the roof off that place. It was one of the loudest oh, yeah. shows I had seen because, I mean, they had... All three guitar. They had so, so many of the band members there. I mean, Eddie Hazel was still there, and Hampton, and yeah. Blackbird. Everybody, man. I was amazed that Blackbird. That was our first time, really, my first time, really uh, focusing on Blackbird. You know, um, and and seeing Eddie Hazel in person. Mm -hmm. You know, before that, like my father took me and my brother to see P Funk at the sports arena in, uh, it was 78, um, with Cameo and Donald Bird and the Blackbirds. Nice. Right? And the next time was the Funk Festival in 79. So uh, that, was a, uh, that was the third time. Did you happen to get to uh, Bootsy at the Forum in 78? No. I had not seen Bootsy until the Funk Festival in 79. Yeah. So, you know, I've heard that you guys, Fishbone, were very democratic, you know, and that everybody had input, and that was a real um, team effort, if you will. But yeah. You know, you guys had such diverse influences, though. How did it happen that that melting pot of so many musical influences just came together like that? Well, ultimately, because most of us were 14 when we met. My younger brother, Fish, he's two years younger than me. And Walt is a year older than all of us, right? And so all the original guys... We actually met at age 13 in the eighth grade, with the exception of Angelo. And we started jamming immediately. Chris's uncle Alex would come to my house, pick up my gear and take it to their house. And we sit in his living room. Me and Fish were already jamming with cats from the neighborhood. Like these dudes that lived in our building, actually. Kevin Allen and Tylon Barger. And they just bang on the back of acoustic guitars and sing into the air. And that's all, you know, so we was 
we was aspiring for something when we met all of us. But the fact is, is that funk was, we, we all were Funkadelic fans. So we, none of us had all the albums, so we traded albums. Well, we didn't, you know, we borrowed each other's music. You know, I didn't have, let's take it to the stage, so Kendall or Chris would give me theirs, you know? So, one, that was, that was Parliament and Funkadelic, the whole P-Funk universe was our common ground. And then, you know, it's, we met, it's like, it was 78. Well, punk rock came into, came into being as, as like a media thing in 77. So we, be, we began to, we began as children, we fucking curious becoming teenagers. What is this thing? And, and what's that thing over there? We, you know, freedom on the, on the radio dial. So we was already listening to rock and roll, you know? So, so, you know, and new wave was beginning to pop up. 78, you know, there was the, the Devo on, on uh, Saturday Night Live, right? That was, that was pivotal. Yeah. You know, and later on, Fear, you know, B-52's records came out, and eventually Black Radio started playing New Way in, La in Los Angeles. So, you know, you, you definitely heard Gary Newman on Black Radio, and Rock Lobster, and it was a little later, but Whip It, you know, by Devo. It was, so all of those, all it was was we were young, curious, and boundless. Boundless because black music seemed like, because of Funkadelic, seemed like you could do whatever you want, you know? So well, we, we, were just, we were just, you know, we were Jimi Hendrix fans. Uh -huh. Sly the Family Stone, you know? Mother's Finest was in the periphery. You know, so there was just enough modern black music that was expansive and where we didn't feel like we needed to just be conservative with it. So for us, it was just what came natural. It's amazing and fantastic that it happened that way because obviously there weren't many bands like you guys where that happened. So, you know, for whatever reason, it all came together like it did for Fishbone to have all those divergent influences coming in and then coming out through what you guys did. Yeah. You know? Yeah, Chris Dow moved to Washington State to stay with his dad. He called me on the phone and played me Black Sabbath and the Sex Pistols over the phone. <laughs> right? And at some point, Angelo, you know, like we was exploring shit, but I remember the day Angelo brought Bad Brains to my house and we all listened to Bad Brains. And then he told us that they was black. We were like, you lying. And he showed us the album cover, picture of Bad Brains, like, oh, shit. And we were fans of the Bus Boys, right? For these things, and, and you know, like, you would watch, the Plasmatics was on TV, they had the black bass player, right? Mm -hmm. black, black, black people were somewhat included. We didn't feel like we couldn't do it. And where, where did the ska influence come from? Well, one, we were, because black radio in LA was playing a little bit of reggae. Bob Marley, late night at first. Then you kind of hear him a little bit in the day. And then uh, Third World, right? Now that we found love, hit the radio. That was a gigantic hit. Right. I may not interpret it as reggae today. They're just Jamaican dudes playing music. It sounded like, sounds like, right? But, but it, it, it did have some. It, it was different. But, and, but, uh, uh, and then still Pulse, right? Stevie Wonder was a big fan of Still Pulse, and 
KJLH was his radio station. And they blew Still Pulse up. Still Pulse was on black radio all over the place, too. So it was actually us playing with reggae rhythms and then speeding it up to punk rock tempos. And I thought we invented something. Walt corrected me and brought the specials. No, he brought the selector and the English beat cassettes. And it was not until later that we were, but we, we so now there's this English, this, this English sky thing that, that we, uh, uh, that we, we didn't, we didn't invent shit, but there's English sky thing we could point to. And it was, it was later where we could actually find that Scott was actually the precursor to reggae. And of, of all of the popular Jamaican styles, and that it was actually black music at the root. Right? So it, it, it took those stages, you know. And it was a movie called Dance Craze, actually, that solidified it. But it was after we saw Dance Craze that, that actually the Jamaican black artistic expression that it is became apparent. And then the history of Jamaican music came after that. And so we just we just grabbed it all. We were just like, yeah, this is what we, you know, it, like again, it seemed like it came natural, you know, just to play with stuff. So we were just discovering music through Dr. Demento. Right. Kim right? yeah. Yeah, Dr. Demento had to, and then eventually, you know, college radio, KXLU, you know, was really, you know, and we and and, and that allowed us to actually really dig deep. You know, it's KXLU where I came in, you know, like Tom Waits and Kate Bush and Metallica. I mean, if people didn't live through it, they should know that also during that time, what you're talking about, I mean, late 70s into 80s, you had disco dying its death. And, um, but also the rise of like corporate driven like R&B for most of the black music, you know, funk started to, to die off. And, and what was happening with uh, black radio mostly was not a great thing in terms of, you know, being on the edge and doing stuff that was really pushing the envelope. Yeah, and and hip hop was growing, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, like 79 saw the Sugar Hill Gang come, come in and knock everything out the box, you know? And then King Tim the Third, right? Fatback, yeah. Then, yeah, King Tim the Third, and then uh, Curtis Blow, right? The Breaks. Yeah. So, so all of that was happening, like, it's, you know, and yeah, and somewhere, somewhere around there, this other sound by Kraftwerk kind of popped his head out, right? Somewhere 78, 79, right? Like that actually is more underground still. Yeah. So all of this stuff was happening. It was a flux and yeah, Black music got super corporate. Um, you know, uh, and Prince was bubbling beneath it all, but he wouldn't become Mr. Dirty Mind until a little later. Yeah. And that's where, that's where, that was a revolution. No pun intended. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, in that environment, it was. Looking at it now, thinking about it now, it almost seems like kind of a miracle that Fishbone would get a major record deal with a major label just because of, you know, being so uh, independently music, musically independent. Yeah, it's, it's like we didn't see it as like we thought that we were perfect. For <laughs> we didn't get how difficult we might occur. Um, but 
David Kahn had the balls to make it all happen. He saw something. David Kahn came to a show at Club Lhasa. He actually asked Fish to to play drums on a Romeo Void track. He was producing Romeo Void. And uh and then he and you know, he's like he he took a chance. He put his he put his probably put his job on the line when it when it come down to how you know record labels operated at that time. He said he told us when he when he because we didn't have to make a demo necessarily. He just took it took us in the studio to see what it would be like to record with him. And he took the result and he presented it in an A&R meeting. He said the head of black music at the A&R, I can't remember the guy's name, but he said when he, when he brought in the cassette, he held it like he was holding a, a rag that was, had shit on it. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and you know what, it's unfortunate, but you know what, it makes sense to me. In, the, in that environment with black music, right? Yep. You know. Um, you know, and I, I don't, like, I don't fault the artist at all. You know, like, I ain't got nothing bad to say about that. The industry itself, you know, was built to do what it was doing. And you know what? Somebody took a chance on Fishbone and we got to we got to actually, like, it was 1980, like late 1984, as I recall, when we actually signed the contract. We, we played our first show in a club in May of 83. And by the November of 84, we were signing a contract. Wow. I remember like, um, Party at Ground Zero. I think my first exposure to Fishbone was probably hearing that on K-Rock. Yeah. K-Rock jumped all over it in Los Angeles. You know what? I not long ago got, I really got to touch base with Eddie X and I, and Swedish Eagle. I like, I, over the years, Swedish Eagle, you know, and it's a few, few of those DJs that were instrumental in making sure that we got played, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, eventually even Richard Blade, right? Rodney Binghamheimer, like them dudes, you know, they showed us love. So, you know, and, and made it to where our city knew who the fuck we were. <laughs> What was it like uh, for you guys being in that environment of the Los Angeles music scene, you know, where you had, you know, the Chili Peppers and you had your um, James Addiction and, you know, Thelonious Monster and all these cats, you know, what was that like? I mean, was it really a brotherhood? Yeah, it's a brotherhood that really fortunately continues today, you know? Like we we're all still connected and you know on some level it, it ain't like when we was kids but you know it's beautiful still some some ways it is <laughs> you know but yeah yeah we were it was like a brotherhood you know it's like when I think about it like you know Flea and Hillel coming to my house Flea wasn't. A, Hillel wasn't even a chili pepper. Jack Sherman was the guitarist, but Flea brought Hillel to my house and we used to jam. Me, Flea, Hillel, and Fish. Flea, Hillel was in What Is This at that time. And, uh, you know, and Jane's Addiction's first two rehearsals was in my mother's living room. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Bob Bob Forrest was my roommate, Thelonious Monster. Like we lived together, you know, on, on Fountain in Hollywood. <laughs> you how, know, how how much do you think that uh, you guys inspired each other musically? 
Well, that, I mean, it was all a shared, like, it was all, like, it was like a friendly, it wasn't, because it wasn't really a competition, but a friendly competition where we all pushed each other to greatness, you know? And I, I actually, it's like this, like, my first Trulio release was a cover of If You Want Me to Stay. It gives a nod to the Chili Peppers version, which George produced, and you know, so it's a nod to that, for sure. And then recently, I did a live stream with Trulio Disgracious, where I took a song. My first knowledge of this song was from Thelonious Monster. Was a, a, a see that my grave was kept clean by Blind Lemon Jefferson. Mm. So, so. Uh, uh, you know, I'm still allowing that those bands to inspire me. Yeah. You know, that's very. And cool. you know, I I see I see my brother Steve Perkins often, drummer for James Addiction. Like we do a talk show bi-weekly with with a panel of hosts, and we play music together quite often with a with a band called Think Experience. Which the core of it is is uh, me, Steve Perkins, Kenny Olson from Kid to Kid Rock or Brown Truckers, mm -hmm. and and Scott Page, who's basically the spearhead of it all, who played guitar and saxophone in Toto, Super Tramp, and in '85 he joined Pink Floyd. You know, after they after Roger Waters left. Um, you know, so it's, it's the four of us is the core. So anyway, the point is that me and Steve Perkins do quite a bit together as well. It's still connected. That's, that's and me, great. Yeah, me, Flea, and Bob Forrest, we we got some some uh, 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 we, we're board members on the Watts Conservatory of Music, which me, Flea, and, 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 a, and my friend David Moss are all a part. Me, Flea, Bob Forrest, David Moss, we're all a part of it. Think Experience is a great supporter of it. We're all, you know, all still doing stuff. I want to uh, talk a little bit about the record specifically, but I also wanted to just throw out there, uh, Norwood, how, you know, you seem to be really a pillar of this whole thing. I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're still standing with it. You're still sort of, you know, representing and, you know, you've done all these other things. And what do you think it is about you, Norwood Fisher, that's enabled you to, you know, carry the torch all this time and sort of be the central figure of, you know, Fishbone and Trulio and, and all these things? Um. You know, I I guess I'm built for the job that I chose. That's all. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, you know, I, I didn't stand up and declare myself a central figure. I just, I just show up. And that's all I know how to do, you know, is, 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 is to show up, show up, show up from, you know, for my people, for 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 what I came here to do, I, I may have I may have connected with exactly why I'm here on the planet. I'm not sure. It feels like it. I'm gonna run with it like the story's, you know, true. <laughs> that works. <laughs> you know, you know, I could have I could have been a lawyer. I thought I liked to argue, but as I got older, I don't like to argue so much. <laughs> My mom used to tell me that when I was a kid. You know, Scott, you love to argue. You should be a lawyer. Like, no, no. <laughs> um, well, going back to the records, uh, Norwood, that first EP that really got you guys on the map, the, the track that was my favorite on there was uh, the one with all the uh, initials. V, V, T, T, L, O. What, what does that stand for, all that? Oh yeah, that was Voyage to the Land of the Freeze Drive Godzilla Farts. There you go. Yeah, that was yes. my track. That was my cut on that one. 
Yeah. Yeah, and you know what? It's what is wild because, you know, we live in a wild time, man. It's, you know, the most insane reality I could have never dreamt of is right now. And actually, that title, it, it comes from a couple places, but I'm going to go right to the part that, that connects to now is it was actually my first, the first time I, I heard somebody imply that the Holocaust didn't happen or was not what they said it was. I thought that was the most insane, preposterous thing I'd ever heard. Revisionary history, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was like, I'm like, somebody can act, is actually going with that one, you know? And I was like, so soon somebody will say that America didn't drop the atomic bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And that those are just freeze-dried Godzilla farts. Right? So that was the inspiration for that. That was one of the inspirations. The only one I'm going to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that one, I would say that one definitely was the one where, uh, to me, the most, that the Funkadelic influence came through on that first one. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, funny thing is lyrically, Cause I, I just, I don't know, I, I know I wasn't trying to be profound when I wrote those lyrics. I can tell you that I was just writing what came out, and uh, you know, it, it's kind of weird that that it, you know the, the the first verse. There's a war going on. Don't know why, but we fight till dawn. Rioting, looting, sub suburbia, urban rowdies, disturbia. You know, like it's like. You know, it's it, it's a weird set of set of lyrics that uncannily fit to the day. I wasn't trying to write nothing about nothing. I was just making words rhyme. Mm. <laughs> yeah, doing setting that setting creating a, a picture. But still, you were influenced by the world you were in, and are still yes. in, and you know it comes through. Yeah, yeah. It's like the Fishbone song, Ghetto Sound Waves, is one that I like look at and like, God damn it, I didn't, we didn't, I didn't write them lyrics. Kendall Jones did. And it's, you know, it's, it's still un, not even funny how well they fit today. Like, you know, we were kids concerned with the world we were living in, not imagining that those lyrics would still apply today. I'd never say they're prophetic. It's just, you know, not much has changed. Yeah, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first full record you did, In Your Face in 86, I mean, that was really impressive, you know, how far you came from the EP to me with that. Yeah. And um, it was, um, I would say, funkier than the first one. The first one was more poppy. It, not really poppy, but you know what I mean? It was a little less intense than the second f record, the full album, um, which was, like I said, funkier. And I really liked yeah. uh, Charlie was awesome. And uh, I wish I had a date um, right. and knock it. I mean, those are favorites for sure. Yeah. When, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, you know, yeah, we were growing. We, you know, that's, that's been one of those things that you know, with with every successive album, we 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 were just exploratory, you know, like really, and and we we'd hoped that we were growing, you know, because that's what it looked like our superheroes were doing, you know. George didn't sit in one place for too long ever. Mm -mm. So, you know, we was always looking for growth. Prince didn't sit in one place for too long. Inspired mm -mm. us to look for growth, you know? Um, yeah, so, and that made it, you know, and we're, we're hopefully still growing, you know? Well, and even if you moved to Truth and Soul in 88, that one was more rocking, you know, than you had been. Yeah, so, and, yeah. Uh, what inspired you guys to do to cover Freddy's Dead? 
again, it was one of them things that just came natural. It was like, we must have been in a sound check somewhere. And I just started rocking the bass line. You know? And we did, and the rest of the band just fell in. We didn't talk about it. Some shit just happened. Mm-hmm. And when we were done, like, we, you know, we didn't play the song. We just jammed on it. And when we were done, we were like, damn, that felt good. And didn't talk about it afterwards too much. And the next day, sound check, it happened again. It must have happened for about four days in a row. And then we were like, maybe we should explore that. You know? Because <laughs> it, it felt natural. It felt good. We just felt, we just, everybody fell in and it, damn. You know? Yeah. Well, it was a favorite of mine before you guys did it, but you guys really rocked it out. Um, how, how did you guys feel about it? And how did you feel personally about being in the studio? You know, you guys, like I said, were a force of nature on stage and legendary on stage. How did you feel in the studio environment? Uh, we, we, we did not feel as if the studio captured what we do. And in fact, at a certain point, we were like, we just kind of went like, yeah, can't capture that thing, you know, and just went to studios, a whole another animal, you know? Um, yeah, because you, you can't have, you know, a packed room and sweaty walls and Angelo sweating on you, spit flying everywhere from the, you know, it's, it's so... So yeah, it, it always felt sterile, and it, and I, I was again intimidated by the whole thing. It took me years to relax in the studio. Hmm. I think we were working with Dallas Austin on Chim Chim's Badass Revenge, and I was I was fretting, just stressed out over this something that I heard as a mistake, and Dallas was looking at me going, I don't hear nothing wrong. And eventually, I just stopped fucking with it. And, you know, and, but because, and, and, and I left the mistake there. I don't think he changed the thing. And then once I got far enough away, I heard it, I heard it, I heard it. And then once I got far enough away from it, I couldn't hear the mistake anymore. You know? And at that point, I was like, maybe I'm good enough. <laughs> Sometimes mistakes make something that much more special. Yeah, and we always, we learn that from the beginning, like you leave mistakes, but there's another part of the brain that wants, you know, like, I, I, it just doesn't, I want it to be somewhere else. And it was hard to let go. Yeah, a lot of times it takes somebody, it takes others to let us know it's good. Yeah, I'll always thank, you know, Dallas Austin for actually opening that door to maybe I'm good enough when we're making Chim Chim's Badass Revenge. Yeah. You know, um, Angelo is such an incredible front man, is such an incredible front man. When he started really doing a lot of the, you know, wild stuff at your shows, I mean, was that talked about it all or did he just kind of go do that and how how did you guys react when you saw some of the nuttiness he was doing i mean part of angelo that's exactly the same as the day i met him so none of it was actually too shocking you know we was kids that loved punk rock so stage diving what what that's what you do, you know, raising hell. That's we. That's what we came to do, <laughs> you know. It's 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 all just a part of, you know, a part of it. That like you know, like we took our cues from from all of the bands in the, the movie The Decline of Western Civilization. Right. So. You know, like bad brains. You know what I mean? Like HR was doing backflips, standing one place. Like you know, we we 
where it was just freedom of expression out of control. The first time Angelo dove from balcony, I, I egged him on. It was in the middle of the show. You know, he had, he was climbing the balconies already. Starting to climb on shit. He was up on the balcony. We were, I believe, at the Marquee in London. And uh, he was, he was, he was, he was, he was getting an audience to do, to do, to say some stuff. And I got on the mic. I was like, Angelo, stop from the balcony. I was like, everybody, get I told the audience to gather around below Angelo and hold their hands up. <laughs> and he did it. I, I just wa I just watched you guys uh, Everyday Sunshine movie again this past week, and uh, there's a shot, a scene of him doing that in the movie. And yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Yeah. 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 He took it further than like I like you know I didn't know what was gonna happen in that moment. He didn't expect it. He went with it. That's how it rolled. You know. I saw there you. was times. There was times when he surprised me. There was a tornado over. Uh, uh, tornado was forming. It didn't fully form, but but a funnel was beginning to form over Lollapalooza '93 in Detroit, the Detroit area show. Everybody was was trying to figure out what to do. The outdoors in the middle of nowhere, like hiding under things that a tornado would have sucked right up. Whatever. Angelo went to the scaffolding of the main stage and climbed it and went to the highest point with road crew just chasing after him like, you got to come down. Angelo got on the top of the scaffolding because he wanted to look into the tornado. <laughs> now, that surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I remember, I think it was in Indiana a few years back, there was something with a, a win where some people lost their lives at a show. I don't even remember who yeah. the show was. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about, bro. That was tragic. Yeah. But um, I saw you guys uh, open for uh, George Clinton uh, last year at Greensboro, North Carolina. Yes. I was at that show and I was uh, up in like second row. And uh, Angelo went out in the crowd, and he like took a pretty good spill going on the chairs out there and stuff. Like <laughs> right, that. right. I'm like, I was, I hadn't seen you guys in quite a while. I was like, man, I was kind of blown away that he was still doing that. Yeah, man. I, you know, it's, it's, again, he, I think he's only doing what comes natural. He is so, you know, so like he's so prone to impulse. And I, I'm like, he'll tell you, I got to do it. He's, he don't know no other way. <laughs> well, I enjoyed the show. You guys still sounded really good, and it was great to see you out there again. Yeah, you know what? That felt amazing. You know, it was, that was, you know, for the original band to come back together in time to make that run, it was poetic for my life, you know? I was, was able. To, my my son, um, that was his first concert. He's like, um, he was fourteen, so nice. Yeah, yeah. Right on. Um, the reality of my surroundings definitely one of my favorite albums you guys did. Um, yes. Really, a lot of variety and ambitious. You know, the scope was impressive on that record and. I really liked uh, So Many Millions, um, Behavior Control Technician. Of course, the class, Everyday Sunshine's on there. Yeah. Um, and Nasty Ma'am. Yeah. 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 Again, like, yeah, we were, we, we, you know, we were a band that we had come off, you know, because we did the License to Ill tour, and then we made Truth and Soul. And we toured our asses off for Truth and Soul. And we went in to make those songs and we rehearsed for six hours a day, six days a week. Mm. And, uh, you know, it made us a better band, that's for sure. You put in that kind of time, you get results. 
and uh, you know, like we were we were kind of out of our minds in that time. But it, it's it's the nature of of music too. You know what I mean? Like it takes a little crazy sometimes to make great art. For sure. So, you know, I I appreciate that 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 it all came out well, and that uh, you know. That, that actually people responded well to it. It was ambitious. Yeah, I think that one had maybe the most overt influences on you guys of Sly Stone and James Brown. Yeah, for sure. And for Clip, sure. And we mentioned Clip. He, he made an appearance on that one, right? He's in the credits, I noticed. Yeah, yeah. Clip must have showed up somewhere. I don't even remember that, but I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm like, damn, Clip did show up. Thank you for reminding me. I don't read them credits that often. I don't have a good memory. I just, somebody was talking, because I remember T-Bone from Trouble Funk came out and did some shit, too. I was just, somebody was talking to somebody. I, I forgot all about that, you know. 